Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. Um, it's a great pleasure to have you here, and I would like to thank Masquerays, purveyors of this furniture, for helping you and David Lodge be here. It's a very great pleasure to have him back as a speaker at this festival where he has glittered among a galaxy for many years. He is, as I'm sure you all know, a master of practically every genre of writing. His novels are world famous, as is his criticism and his screenwriting. Please welcome David Lodge. came in this morning and saw all, practically all the events this morning was sold out, I knew Matthew Arnold's prophecy had come true and that literature has replaced religion. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for coming on this fine Sunday morning. Um, since I published my second novel a long time ago in 1962, I've published a, a, a book of criticism and a work of fiction in alternation ever since. Um, this hasn't been exactly um, a set program, which I was determined to keep to, but it, was a, it became a natural rhythm for me in my writing, partly because I find it takes quite a long time to generate a new novel, and I can't always be writing fiction. Um, and writing criticism is, uh, though satisfying, slightly less anxious-making uh, process, and it's nice to do in between novels. And the other reason is that for professional is a professional reason that um, for nearly three decades I was a university teacher at Birmingham University and required to publish scholarship and criticism uh, in order to demonstrate my professional credentials. I retired from Birmingham in 1987, I took early retirement to, to become a full-time writer, but I found I've gone on writing criticism and I've gone on keeping to this uh, alternation of fiction and non-fiction writing. Um, the criticism or essays have become rather less specialised, less academic, and more directed at a general audience. Um, and uh, a couple of few years ago, I wrote um, a book called *The Art of Fiction*, which originally was a series of articles in a newspaper. Um, and my most recent book, and one I'm going to talk about and around this morning, um, is called *The Practice of Writing*, and it's um, subtitled. Um, Essays, lectures, reviews, and a diary. And the, the diary is actually a production diary I kept during the rehearsals uh, of a, my first play, The Writing Game at Birmingham in 1990. Criticism can be seen in different ways in relation to creative writing. It can be seen as complementary to it, which I suppose is the orthodox view. Um, it's the formal expression of what goes on all the time, uh, people reacting to, uh, evaluating, assessing, discussing uh, works of literature that they've read. And it implies a, a separation of uh, functions between the creative writer and the critic. It can be become oppositional. A lot of writers um, distrust criticism. 
um, I forget who it was who, when asked what he thought of critics, said, well, what does a lamppost think of dogs? Probably a, <laughs> probably a playwright, because playwrights suffer more in terms of uh, pure material effect on their careers from critics than perhaps other forms of writer. Um, writers often uh, almost as distrustful of their admiring critics as they are of their um, hostile critics, because they feel that... Um, they're being anticipated, they're being mastered, they're being interpreted by somebody else who's somehow taking over their work. It sometimes happens to very famous writers like William Golding or Graham Greene, and they've written about this. Um, then there is a view that criticism is itself a form of creative writing. Um, Oscar Wilde, I think, took this view, uh, for instance. And um, some of the more avant-garde post-structuralist, deconstructionist writing um, today by people like Jacques Derrida is a kind of imaginative writing um, of an avant-garde kind. And then one can say that criticism is a part of creative writing, and this is certainly true. Um, and I, I quote uh, at the beginning of this book, or in the introduction, um, a remark by T.S. Eliot, who said probably the largest part of the labor of an author in composing his work is critical labor, the labor of sifting, combining, expunging, correcting, testing. This frightful toil is as much critical as creative. I didn't go on to quote the rest of the passage because it might have seemed a little um, vainglorious or boastful, but it, um, Eliot goes on to say, I maintain even that the criticism employed by a trained and skilled writer on his own work is the most vital, the highest kind of criticism, and that some creative writers are superior to others solely because their critical faculty is superior. Now, I certainly don't think that um, <clears throat> the essays in here are, are, are the highest kind of criticism or the best I could write or anybody else could write, but I do think Eliot is correct when he uh, says that um, the business of writing is as much critical as creative and that it involves a constant self-criticism. It's not clear whether he meant that this is a private kind of criticism which only the writer can know about or whether he was referring to writers explaining how they came to write what they did because he did very little of that himself, gave us very little of that. But certainly... As I say, although there are some writers who seem to be able to produce their work in high quality very quickly, um, for most writers, it's an absurdly labor-intensive activity. Few modern novels, I suppose, take m more than about 10 hours to read. But the novelist will work for hundreds, possibly thousands of hours um, on that novel to give the reader that kind of intense pleasure, hopefully. And as I say, that work is... Um, essentially critical, as Eliot describes it. That doesn't, of course, mean that writers are uh, necessarily or ever the best critics of their own work because they're too involved in it, they've got too much ego invested in it. But they can tell us sometimes uh, how they write their work, why it took the form it did. They can let us peep into the writer's workshop, and I think readers are always very interested in that kind of um, information. And a number of the essays um, in the book that um, I'm talking about are of that kind. They're, they're personal, rather anecdotal essays about my experience of writing in the different forms 
um, that Peter mentioned that, that, that I've been involved in, fiction, drama, screenplays, uh, adaptations of novels. Uh, yesterday, if any of you were here yesterday and going to the events, we had two very different um, responses by distinguished writers to uh, writing for the screen. Um, Martin Amis uh, obviously regarded it as a form of penal servitude um, and uh, had, was very disillusioned and disillusioning about it and said you spend years trying to make a book as good as you can and then when you adapt it you spend six months making it bad again. Um, and we had Harold Pinter last night saying that um, he found um, adapting novels for the screen an immensely interesting, satisfying experience and has had a lot of pleasure from it. And I share his view. I mean, I've um, adapted um, one novel of my own, Dickens' Martin Chuzzlewit, um, and uh, my play for television, and they've been very interesting experiences. I've enjoyed them. And I should be talking a little bit about that in, wh in what I read from, from this book. So I'm going to read a few snippets from it, which I hope are going to be um, amusing, possibly interesting. Um, the first one, uh, I'll read some extracts from uh, an essay called Fact and Fiction in the Novel, which I think is um, a subject um, of intense interest to uh, readers of novels. How much is invented? How much is autobiographical? Um, the essay has uh, some epigraphs, one of which is actually from Martin Amis's Money, where you may remember if you've read that excellent novel, um, the novelist himself is um, accosted in a pub by the hero. Um, the hero, John Self, of the novel meets his creator, Martin Amis, without knowing that he is his creator. I'm going to get stung to death. And, um, and uh, John Self says to Martin Amis, hey, when you, do you sort of make it up, or is it just, you know, like what happens? And the answer is neither. But there's a passage in my novel, Small World, um, which is a rather ribald passage, uh, but I hope um, you will pardon that for the light that it enables me to throw on this whole question of the relationship between fact um, and fiction in the novel. The situation in, at this point of the story is that Professor Morris Zapp, American uh, professor of Euphoric State University, who is en route from a conference in Rummage, England, into the Rockefeller Study Center at Bellagio on Lake Como, is delayed in Milan by a public service strike and is offered hospitality for the night by Fulvio Morgana, who is a rich Marxist professor of cultural studies and lives in Milan, who he met on the plane from London. Her interest in him had quickened when she realized, or he, he, she realized that uh, Morris's ex-wife Desiree was the famous author of a best-selling uh, feminist novel called Difficult Days. Was it autobiographical, Fulvia inquired? In part, he replied. And now in Fulvia Morgana's palatial house just off the Via Napoleone, after partaking of a delicious dinner for two, Morris Zapp becomes uneasily aware that Fulvia has plans to seduce him. Now, this is the passage. Don't let us talk any more about books, she said, floating across the dimly lit room with a brandy glass like a huge bubble in her hand, or about chairs and conferences. 
She stood very close to him and rubbed the back of her free hand over his crotch. Is it really 25 centimeters, she murmured. <laughs> what gives you that idea, he said hoarsely. Your wife's book. You don't want to believe everything you read in books, Fulvia, said Morris, grabbing the glass of cognac and draining it in a single gulp. He coughed and his eyes filled with tears. A professional critic like you should know better than that. Novelists exaggerate. But how much do they exaggerate, Morris? <laughs> I would like to see for myself. Like practical criticism, he quipped. Fulvia did not laugh. Didn't you make your wife measure it with her tape measure, she persisted. Of course I didn't. That's just feminist propaganda, like the whole book. He lurched towards one of the deep armchairs, puffing clouds of cigar smoke like a retreating battleship. But Fulvia steered him firmly towards the sofa and sat down beside him, pressing her thigh against his. She undid a button of his shirt and slid a cool hand inside. He flinched as the gems on one of her rings snagged in his chest hair. Lots of air, Fulvia purred. That is in the book. I'm not saying the book is entirely fictitious, said Morris. Some of the minor details are taken from life. Airy as a beast. You were a beast to your wife, I think. Oh, exclaimed Morris, for Fulvia had dung, dug her long lacquered nails into his flesh for emphasis. How? Oh? Well, for example, tying her up with leather straps and doing all those degrading things to her. Lies, all lies, said Morris desperately. You can do those things to me if you like, Caro. Fulvia whispered into his ear, pinching his nipple painfully at the same time. I don't want to do anything to anybody. I never did, Morris groaned. The only time we ever fooled around with that SM stuff, it was Desiree's idea, not mine. I don't believe you, Morris. It's true. Novelists are terrible liars. They make things up. They change things around. Black becomes white, white black. They're totally unethical beings. Ouch! Fulvia had nibbled his earlobe hard enough to draw blood. Well, Fulvia Morgana is making an elementary mistake here about the relationship of fiction to reality. Because the fiction corresponds to historical fact in some respects, for example, Morris's che hairy chest, she assumes that it does in every respect. And most novelists are familiar with that reaction from readers, even from quite sophisticated readers, whom they meet face to face. The physical presence of the writer with his or her personal history available for interrogation seems to push aside the willing suspension of disbelief, the aesthetic appreciation of elegant narrative structure, the ludic delight in the proliferation of meaning, in favor of a beady-eyed curiosity about the true story behind the fiction. Spouses of novelists and other relatives and close acquaintances are apt to suffer this curiosity in a particularly trying form, as Maurice Zapp discovers. For the record, this episode in Small World has no source in my own experience, <laughs> but was generated entirely by the needs and possibilities of the narrative. Admittedly, I was once resident at the Rockefeller Study Center at Bellagio, where Morris Zapp is going, but after writing the novel, not before, and I certainly met no one like Fulvia Morgana on the way to anywhere. Small World is subtitled An Academic Romance, a designation that plays on the recognized genre term academic novel and also indicates what kind of romance is invoked. Not the Mills and Boone kind, but the kind loved and studied by academics. Heliodorus, the stories of King Arthur and his knights, the fairy queen, um, Ariosto's Orlando Furioso, the late plays of Shakespeare, and so on, all enter into it. As one of the characters in the novel says, real romance, 
is a pre-novelistic kind of narrative. It's full of adventure and coincidence and surprises and marvels and has lots of characters who are lost or enchanted or wandering about looking for each other or for the grail or something like that. So Small World claims the license to be highly fictional, as the epigraph to the novel from Hawthorne says, when a writer calls his work a romance, it need hardly be observed that he wishes to claim a certain latitude in which he would not have felt himself entitled to assume had he professed to be writing a novel. But Small World is, of course, a novel as well, a comic novel. And the passage between Maurice Zapp and Fulvia Morgana is designed to contribute both to the romance theme and the comic effect. So Maurice Zapp is reenacting the uh, story of the errant knight who lured into an enchanted castle and entrapped in the toils of a seductive sorceress. The name Fulvia Morgana echoes that of Morgan Le Fay in Arthurian legend. In her mirrored bedroom, Fulvia snaps handcuffs onto Maurice Zapp's wrist and removes his underpants, rendering it powerless to escape. Kind of spell. Travesty uh, turns into farce as the terrified Zapp hears her husband, Ernesto, letting himself into the house and climbing the stairs. But in a reversal of the outraged husband stereotype, Ernesto greets Maurice Zapp genially and prepares to join him and Fulvia between the crimson sheets of the bed. So there's a lot of reversal in this um, little episode. There's a reversal of the normal seduction roles in Fulvia's pursuit of the reluctant Maurice, and there's the reversal of the uh, normal sadomasochistic roles in that Fulvia, while inviting Maurice to hurt her, actually hurts him. Um, it's important to note that the reader doesn't know whether Maurice Zapp is telling the truth when he says that the novel uh, that his wife wrote doesn't represent the truth. And neither do I know whether Maurice Zapp is telling the truth. In other words, I, I know nothing more about Desiree's novel or the sexual side of the Zapp marriage than is fragmentarily revealed in the pages of Changing Places and Small World. And for my purposes, it wasn't necessary to determine how accurate an account Maurice Zapp is giving or Desiree was giving in her novel. In short, there's no source for the episode, either fictional or factional, against which its truth could be checked. But this doesn't, of course, mean there are no factual sources for um, other episodes in Small World. Uh, there are. Um, but the question, as I say, that John Self asks Martin Amis, um, is it you make it all up or is it like it happened is the question readers always ask novelists and the answer that Martin Amos gives in the book neither is the one they always give or they might say both one of the ways in which you try and indicate the impossibility of answering such a question straightforwardly is through some kind of author's note and Small World um, has an author's note of this kind, which runs as follows. Like Changing Places, to which it is a sequel, Small World resembles what is sometimes called the real world without corresponding exactly to it, and is peopled by figments of the imagination. Rummage is not Birmingham, though it owes something to popular prejudices about that city. There really is an underground chapel at Heathrow and a James Joyce pub in Zurich but no universities in Limerick or Darlington, nor as far as I know, was there ever a British Council representative in Genoa. The Modern Language Association Convention of 1979 did not take place in New York, though I have drawn on the program for the 1978 one, which did, and so on. Now, 
At first glance, that may sound like um, a familiar dis defensive maneuver to avoid being sued for libel by people who might recognize themselves. But the note also informs readers that things in the novel which they might have supposed were invented were in fact real. I wanted my readers to know that the panel discussions at the Modern Language Association Convention in Part 5 on topics like lesbian feminist teaching and learning and problems of cultural distortion in translating expletives in the work of Cortazar, Sender, Baudelaire and Flaubert were not parodies but the real thing. <laughs> I wanted them to know that the Dublin pub painstakingly dismantled and re-erected in Zurich in memory of James Joyce, who wrote most of Ulysses in that city, was not some strange conceit of mine but a fact. A fact that says much about the curious intertwining of high culture and popular culture in our epoch, about the reification of literary reputations and the deification of dead writers. If Small World had a single point of origin in the real world, it was in fact the James Joyce Symposium of 1979 held in Zurich, which I attended, and where I first made the acquaintance of that pub, thronged with Joycean scholars from every corner of the globe, knocking back tumblers of draft Guinness and discussing textual cruces in Finnegan's Wake at the tops of their voices. While outside on Pelicanstrasse, the burghers of Zurich went decorously about the serious business of making money, and across the river in the red light district where my hotel, chosen at random, was situated, <laughs> squeaky clean prostitutes stood on the well-swept street corners, one per corner in the methodical Swiss way. What strange conjunctions and piquant contrasts the lives of modern academics encompassed, it struck me, as they toted their, modern, their, their, their conference papers and lightweight luggage around the global campus. There might be a novel in it. And from Zurich, I flew direct to another conference in Israel, an experience that provided much of the local color for the conference organized by Morris Zapp in part four of Small World. I quote again from Small World. Now it is mid-August. And Maurice Zapp's conference on the future of criticism is in full swing. Almost everybody involved agrees that it's the best conference they've ever attended. Maurice is smug. The secret of his success is very simple. The formal proceedings of the conference are kept to a bare minimum. There's just one paper a day actually delivered by its author early in the morning. The other papers are circulated in Xerox form, and the remainder of the day is allocated to unstructured discussion of the issues raised in these documents, or in other words, to swimming and sunbathing in the Hilton pool, sightseeing in the old city, shopping in the bazaar, eating out in ethnic restaurants, and making expeditions to Jericho, the Jordan Valley, and Galilee. I always feel a twinge of guilt when I read that passage because those who hosted and attended the conference on which it's based know it was in fact an extraordinarily hard-working affair and that the sightseeing and other hedonistic diversions were um, mentioned in the passage were indulged in only after we'd been released from long days in smoke-filled seminar rooms or during an optional four-day tour at the end of the conference. But for the purposes of the novel, this conference had to be the one in which the institution of the, the international conference would demonstrate most spectacularly its way of, quote, work, converting work into play, combining professionalism with tourism and all at someone else's expense. And I suppose it's what Maurice Zapp means when he says that the truth of fact and the needs of fiction conflict. The novelist will always favor the latter. Well, one thing I forgot to mention was that um, the University of 
limerick, which I thought I invented, um, which I did invent, that came into being later. <laughs> this is um, another hazard that the novelist sometimes faces in uh, negotiating this treacherous territory between fact and fiction. Um, Small World is a kind of unplanned sequel to Changing Places, and in the sense that I had no intention of writing another book set in Rummage, um, as Small World begins in Rummage. And then uh, I, I again um, used this setting when I began work on a, a novel about the impact of Thatcherism on universities and industry, a novel that would be intertextually related to the so-called industrial novels of the 19th century. It seemed pointless to try and invent another Midlands city and Midlands University, um, so I used Rummage again. But Nice Work is a, a more sober and realistic novel than its carnivalesque predecessors, and the physical setting became less of a caricature and more of a likeness of Birmingham in its composition. The membrane between fact and fiction, between Birmingham and Rummage, has undoubtedly become thinner and more transparent with the passing of time. And I was concerned that it might actually be ruptured by the television serialization of Nice Work, which I scripted myself, because it was filmed entirely on location in Birmingham. And rather to my alarm, um, it was the, the university bits were filmed on the campus of the university. Um, Fortunately for me, I just retired about that time. <laughs> I know that some of my colleagues were um, rather disapproving of this idea. Um, and the administration, uh, who granted permission to the BBC, uh, did so because they thought uh, that the public relations advantages of showing the campus on television outweighed any possible effect of my satire. And they were right, actually. Uh, they actually did... Um, market research after the um, serial was, uh, was shown, which showed that 61% of viewers felt the campus featured in the program is attractive. <laughs> Watching it film was um, a fascinating but at times disorienting experience because I was seeing many scenes that I had invented um, being returned to the real locations which had given rise to them, and um, not only on the academic side of the story, but also on the industrial side. Most of the foundry sequences in episode one of that serial, if any of you saw it, um, were in fact shot in the very first foundry I visited while researching the novel. And um, the university settings, as I say, are um, based on, on Birmingham. One Sunday morning, I remember vividly, um, I got up and left my house and um, went to the main entrance of the university, which is only about half a mile away, and there, like a dream or hallucination, was a traffic jam that I had invented three years earlier. <laughs> An articulated lorry was drawn up across the road, blocking the passage of other vehicles, while placard-waving pickets of the Association of University Teachers engaged the driver in earnest discussion of their grievances. And the girl student rushed up beside me and said, Oh dear, is the university closed? I must get in. And uh, she hadn't taken in the signboard with its fake heraldic shield that read University of Rummage. You know, I'm I said it's only a film, but I didn't confess that I'd written it. <laughs> one, one of the um, aspects of filmmaking or television uh, drama making, essentially, um, they're very similar, is that they're both collaborative. And returning to the point made yes points made yesterday, I mean, Martin Amis obviously finds collaboration very difficult and doesn't enjoy it. I think if you don't enjoy it. Um, then you won't enjoy the process of making a, a film. 
it's partly for a novelist, um, I find, um, a freeing experience not to bear the whole artistic weight of responsibility for the product, actually. And very often, um, you find that in working around problems that you weren't responsible for, um, it creates new and interesting um, variations on, on the original. Um, I'd just like to read a little passage from an essay, one of the essays in this book, um, which is called Adapting Nice Work, and about my experience of, of adapting that for the BBC in Birmingham. Um, this is the little passage I think is self-explanatory. The German part of the story provided perhaps the most striking example of how external circumstances can affect the form and content of a television drama. In the novel, Vic Wilcox goes to a trade exhibition in Frankfurt to buy an expensive machine tool for his foundry, taking with him his industry uh, shadow, Robin Penrose. I imagine most of you here know this book, or you probably wouldn't be here, but I mean, the story is about a, a uni young university feminist lecturer who has to shadow a managing director of an engineering firm uh, as part of an industry uh, scheme. And as I say, at this point, they go to Germany together. Um, through her knowledge of German, she protects him from some rather sharp practice by the German businessmen with whom he is dealing, and this action precipitates um, a brief affair between them. Very early in the process of turning Nice Work, the novel, into a television serial, indeed before the contract was even signed, the producer, Chris Parr, and myself had what we thought was an amazing piece of luck. We discovered that the principal foundry trade show in Europe, which is only mounted once in every four years because it's so expensive and difficult to, 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 to mount, was to be held in Dusseldorf in May 1989, which was exactly the time when we would want to shoot the um, German episodes of Nice Work. Uh, there was an organizing body called GIFA, um, the acronym for something to do with Foundry Association. Um, and they agreed to let us film inside the exhibition. A participating company agreed to let us use their stand. And so I wrote the screenplay showing Vic and, and Robin, um, as in the novel, uh, making their way through a crowded exhibition hall. Uh, I imagined you know, a sort of uh, long-distance uh, sort of telescopic shot which would pick them out going through this, this crowded hall with these wonderful, huge, immense machines going up and down uh, in simulated motion. Um, it promised to be a spectacular scene of a kind which you couldn't possibly uh, simulate or fake. I mean, it would cost almost the entire budget of that serial to, to, to mount such a, uh, a thing specially. So we thought we, um, we were really in luck. And then sometime later, in February 1989, when the serial was already in production, um, alarm bells rang. Somebody had sent to Germany the script and not only the script of the scenes in the exhibition hall, but also of a subsequent scene in a restaurant in, uh, overlooking the river in which the German businessmen are showed, shown trying to pull the wool over Vic's eyes um, about and try to trick him about the specification of the machine that he's seeking to buy from them. The um, umbrella organization, GIFA, having read this scene, immediately withdrew their permission to us to, to film. Um, and refused permission to let us not only inside the exhibition hall, but anywhere near it, um, on the grounds that we were portraying German businessmen in a dishonorable light. Well, we pleaded that our film also showed British businessmen indulging in deception, which indeed it did. 
uh, but to no avail. I believe businessmen do this occasionally. We appealed to Jeeva's sense of humor. It didn't apparently exist. <laughs> Desperately, I offered to make the offending characters German-speaking Swiss. <coughs> which, <laughs> which I thought was pretty ingenious, but no dice. In the end, I had to rewrite the episode so that Vic doesn't go to a trade exhibition. He goes to visit a German factory, taking Robin with him. Um, he goes to appraise and purchase his uh, automatic core molder, which is what the machine is there. There was no time available to find a suitable factory in Germany. The location we used in the end was a factory in Stourbridge, just down the road from Birmingham, that made coal core molders under license. There was another irony here, because I therefore discovered that Vic needn't have gone to Germany in the first place to buy <laughs> core molders. <laughs> They were making them under license from a German company in Stourbridge. <laughs> so we got this factory, and we put uh, the people responsible put German language notices up on the walls, and we imported German actors to take part in this scene where Vic and Robin go around and are shown around the factory by the managing director, and de the machine is demonstrated to them. We made strenuous efforts to tidy up the factory, but I'm afraid it fell well short of normal German standards in that, in that respect. So visually, the scene was much less spectacular than the one I'd originally hoped to have. It was much smaller scale. Um, but dramatically, oddly enough, I think it was probably an improvement because, because I didn't have the spectacle to rely on. Um, I had to research the scene rather more carefully than I had done before. I found out more about how these core molders worked. And in the new scene, it had to become more dramatic, really. I made more of the fact that Robin is pretending to be Vic's sort of bimbo assistant and adopting um, you know, a kind of rather proletarian accent and being, playing the dumb blonde sort of thing. And um, by that time, I'd seen the two actors, uh, Warren Clark and um, uh, Hayden Gwynn, who played those parts so wonderfully. I'd seen them in rehearsal and they gave me ideas for how to write extra lines that they could exploit. So that, I think, is an example of how uh, working around um, what seems at first to be a frustrating problem, not of your making, interfering with your artistic freedom, actually can generate um, something positive and something new. Um, right, I'll just finish with one more small piece about nice work, because it touches on this interesting question of the difference between novel and screenplay and the technical problems involved in adapting. And it concerns um, a passage in which uh, Vic is sitting in a chair in his office with the lights out, thinking. His, uh, his mind's already, he's already beginning to be rather attracted by this young woman who at first he hated. And he, she's just told him that she has a live-in boyfriend, or at least he lives with her at weekends, um, called Charles. And this is his reflection, and it's a very typical piece of novel discourse. It's, it's, it's about what's going on in his head. She was the most independent woman he'd ever met, and this had made him think of her as somehow unattached. And, well, it was a funny word to float into his mind, but chaste. He recalled a painting he'd seen once at the Rummage Art Gallery on a school outing. It must have been more than 30 years ago, but it stuck in his memory, and arguing with Shirley the other day about nudes had revived it. A large oil painting of a Greek goddess and a lot of nymphs washing themselves in a pond in the middle of a wood and some, some young chap in the foreground peeping at them from behind a bush. 
The goddess had just noticed the peeping Tom and was giving him a really filthy look, a look that seemed to come right out of a picture and subdue even the schoolboys who stared at it, usually all too ready to snigger and nudge each other at the sight of a female nude. For some reason, the painting was associated in his mind with the word chaste, and now with Robin Penrose. He pictured her to himself in the pose of the goddess, tall, white-limbed, indignant, setting her dogs on the intruder. This, as I say, is very typical of the novel. It's a kind of discourse which didn't exist in literature until the novel um, matured as a, as a literary form. It uses a device called free indirect style, where the um, narrator adopts the language that is appropriate to the character's own thought, but turns it into third-person narration. It employs a very literary kind of irony at the expense of the male character. It appeals over his head to the educated reader to supply the missing information that explains why Vic associates Robin with chastity and with this painting. Um, the, the, the subject of the painting, of course, was Diana, the goddess of chastity, something he was told by his teacher, uh, but has forgotten. And the picture that he um, sees is um, some kind of um, copy of Titian's famous picture of Diana surprised by Actaeon, who she then turned into uh, a, a stag that was uh, chased by the hounds and killed. Um, well, this passage is antithetical to film in technique. There's no action. It's all thoughts. All, and that's exactly what film finds very difficult to render, thought. You can either make the characters speak their thoughts, or you can do it as a voiceover. But in either case, if they're very detailed, um, it interferes with the natural rhythm of the cinematic medium. And as it didn't contribute anything to the story particularly either, I, can't, I didn't think of putting it into the screenplay. But the director, Chris Manol, um, who collaborated with me in the later stages of drafting the screenplay, um, was looking for some way of expressing the turmoil of the hero's inner emotional life, a, a, a very hard-nosed businessman who suddenly becomes infatuated with a, of a younger woman, um, and um, which disturbs his life uh, in, in all kinds of ways. And he thought this passage could be a possible way in, that is, in dream and reverie, Vic Wilcox could picture the young woman, Robin, as Diana, as the chaste, uh, forbidden, angry, unobtainable object of his desire. There happened to be two acts of voyeurism already in the story. One where he, he peeps through a spy hole at her when she first comes to the um, factory because his predecessor arranged that in the reception room so that he could see who was coming to visit him. And the second where accidentally, when uh, he knocks uh, very angrily on um, Robin's door uh, late at night um, uh, to confront her over something, she's in her dressing gown. And in the course of their violent conversation and argument, um, the dressing gown falls open for a moment and he glimpses her naked breast, which is very disturbing to him. So there already this voyeur sort of motif was in the novel. And um, the Diana picture is, of course, a, a kind of classic um, embodiment of it. So to cut a long story short, fortunately in those days, uh, BBC had um, um, uh, facilities for building sets, which I don't think it has anymore, and they weren't being used at the time. And Chris Manor was able to have constructed a huge warm water pond with waterfalls and have um, naked nymphs and uh, Hayden dressed up as Diana uh, and to uh, create a kind of tableau of um, Diana surprised by Actaeon. Um, 
the main problem for me as a writer was how to convey to the audience why Vic was having this fantasy of um, uh, this almost hallucination of Robin as Diana. And the solution I arrived at was to have a flashback scene in which Vic, as a young schoolboy, visits the art gallery, uh, sees the picture, we see him looking at it, then we see Vic coming in as an adult to the gallery and seeing the picture again and suddenly realizing why he's associated um, Robin with Diana and with chastity. And it was done at the um, gallery of the Royal Birmingham Society of Authors, uh, of uh, Royal Birmingham Society of Artists. And um, when the series was well into production, Chris Manol asked me to write some extra dialogue, which he wanted to cover the camera movements in this um, in this in this scene, where an art lecturer is actually giving an art lecture to some students about this picture. And uh, through some slip up. Um, I, I didn't get the right deadline to do this work, and I was leaving my house for London one morning, and I got an urgent phone call saying they've all set up down at the art gallery in Birmingham, um, and they needed these extra lines. Um, and so I raced down there, and standing in the lobby in my raincoat, I wrote several lines of art historical jargon about the nude and voyeurism and the male gaze on the back of a, an old envelope um, before rushing off to catch my train to London. Well, whatever the quality of the lines, I th um, writing a novel was never so exciting. Thank you very much. Um, ladies and gentlemen, for the questions session, please could you put up your hands with a question and I will run up and down the aisles and could you keep your hand up until I've seen the first and then the second um, to put to David? I'm interested in this business of adaptation from one medium to another. I wonder when you come to write the script and then perhaps to see the finished item, whether you see themes in your own work that you hadn't spotted before and what kind of things those might be. I think what you often find when you write a script and see it performed is that performance can uh, bring out meanings or impart meanings um, to that, that you hadn't anticipated. I mean, you know, it's partly because the, the physical presence of the actor, mere body language, can make, you know, a, an ejaculation like, oh full of humor or drama or whatever. I mean, so that there's that element. It's, I mean, that's part of the, the pleasure of seeing one's work adapted, is that although a lot is inevitably lost, because nearly always it involves condensation, uh, cutting, throwing things out, um, there is also something new, which comes from the performance dimension. And um, so you see your own work again, and it, it's happening all the time, so it's hard to pick out any particular example. Um, but... Um, I mean, the way that, you know, sort of Hayden Gwynn acts with her eyes, for instance, um, even when she's not speaking, um, she's reacting to what another character is saying. It's almost impossible to convey that sort of thing in words alone. So I think that was what I would pick out. Um, I think that I have a fairly clear idea of what my novels are about, and as an adapter, I try to be faithful to that um, notion of their meaning. And... It, 
other people will see other things in both the novel and the film that I am not aware of, I mean, quite legitimately. Sometimes they may see things which aren't there at all, but um, very often they see things there quite legitimately, which I wasn't conscious of putting in. Um, I, I think as a result of writing for performance, um, you know, in, the f in, in screenplays and plays, I my work's become more dialogic, and the spoken word becomes has become more important in it than it used to be. It used to be more narrated. I mean, the, the narrator, the author's voice, used to be dominant. And now I think it's a bit more dramatic in the sense that it's, it's conveyed through what the characters say to each other, and that's probably the result of writing for performance. Why do you think we write? And why are we so insistent on showing other people what we write, except mm. for the money, of course? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I've <sighs> I suppose one could only answer this question personally, and, and I would say that I started to write, but I believe it's true of many people, um, because I, I enjoyed reading because I, I got an enormous uh, satisfaction out of reading and I wanted to see if I could do that trick myself on other people. Um, and you usually begin writing by emulating or imitating the writers who you admire. It's a natural process of apprenticeship, I think. Um, there may be deeper reasons than that. Um, I think that Martin Ames was talking about uh, professions that are liable to depression and suicide yesterday, and uh, he didn't mention writers who are, in fact, the top of the league uh, for suicide. The writers are rather vulnerable um, emotionally and psychologically, I think, and writing is, in a way, a compensation for that. And I think uh, they, that may not be the reason one starts writing, but it may never be a conscious reason, but I think that the the ability to turn negative experience, and it needn't be of a psychological kind, it can be human tragedy uh, uh, of, a, of a quite concrete kind. Or it can be something fairly trivial, petty humiliations and failures in social life, which often uh, annoy us and irritate us and um, make us writhe in embarrassment. All those negative things which can happen to you in life, um, if of the writer can turn them to positive account. Um, uh, Don Levy put it rather cynically, said um, you know, writing is a way of turning um, the, the, the worst moments of your life into money. Um, well, I would say it's a way of turning the worst moments, <laughs> I would prefer to say. If the money comes along as well, that's very nice. But um, I think there is a, 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 an enormous privilege um, in being able to do that, to turn negative experience into a source of something positive for other people um, in the form of a fiction or a play or a poem, whatever it is. But those, I think, are the two main reasons. Perhaps to be very philosophical and earnest about it, it's also a way of trying to defy mortality. And one produces books, perhaps, for the same reason that people produce children and take pleasure in having children. It's a way of ensuring some continuity for yourself beyond the limits of your own life. I think writers often think of their books as, as if they're, in a way, children, their children. I thought the scene in therapy with the turds in the lavatory was one of the, one of the funniest I've ever read. 
Um, I wondered if you'd thought how that might translate to the small screen. Sorry, I didn't catch the crucial scene. What was the... The turds in the lavatory. Ah, right. No, um, there are some things you can't show, I think. Uh, <laughs> probably could on Animal House 4 or something, but um, there... Um, no, I don't, I don't have that in it. I do have some the, the sort of grotesque comedy of the hero um, trying to conduct um, a romantic tryst wearing um, an athletic brace on his knee um, and an elbow brace on his elbow because that you know, is kind of visually funny, I hope, and uh, will um, work. Um, I think I mean, that's one of the reasons why one goes on writing novels. That there are some things you can write about... Um, because of the intensely intimate, private nature of reading, um, that it's difficult to imagine um, showing um, visually without, or, you know, without being in bad taste or making people feel uncomfortable or, or whatever. Uh, and I suspect that falls into the same category. So does the episode, which I'm rather fond of, of particular use that the hero makes of um, Paul Newman's salad dressing. That won't appear in the in the movie either, if you happen to remember that. Um, post, uh, post-structuralism, post-deconstruction, post-feminist theory, which way do you see academic criticism going? I, I'm, I'm not at the coalface anymore. anymore. I mean, I retired in 1987, and um, I was immensely relieved not to have to keep up with literary theory anymore, I must say, when, um, one of the pleasures of retirement. Um, my impression is, insofar as I still keep in touch, is that theory uh, is on the wane. I mean, it's had its day, it's, re it's reached its peak and is declining. It's hard to say what's um, following it. I mean, in the field of theory, the popular form at the moment, fashionable form, is a form of, sort of cultural materialism, um, which is slightly odd, really, because it's essentially Marxist in origin, and Marxism would seem to be a rather discredited um, sort of thought system at the moment. But uh, feminist criticism is still very vigorous, um, but uh, again, as you say, I mean, it's got, in some sense, in quotation marks, or it's got post in front of it. I think creative writing is becoming a very important component of literary studies in, um, in various ways. That is, um, first of all, it's becoming in Britain, um, an established part of both the undergraduate and the postgraduate curriculum, whereas uh, it was not during my time, really, at university. It started, but it was rather frowned upon. It was a rather minority thing. But now, uh, more and more, it's becoming a, a, a staple. And seen not merely as a way of um, training people to be professional writers, but as a way of enhancing their understanding of how literature works. I mean, you, let, you know how to do it. And also helping them as teachers of English uh, later. I, mean, I, I think this is very valuable. And I noticed that a lot of the um, leading literary critics uh, of the 70s and 80s who were in the van of the theory movement are increasingly themselves writing fiction or autobiography as if they're tired of theory too and want a more imaginative kind of um, uh, writing. So I think I, 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 that my money would be on that, actually, the, as the new um, trend in, in the academic study of English. In Changing Places, you have a group of characters who uh, play a game whereby they have to admit to not having read a famous book. Mm -hmm. If you were playing the game, which would your 
What be? I used to have one, um, always ready, um, but um, I, I think it was the Brothers Karamazov, but then I read that on a Caribbean cruise, which is a very strange experience, I must say. Um, I've got lots of gaps. Uh, recently, the, well, about a year or so ago, the Daily Telegraph sort of borrowed my idea, and they asked a number of writers um, just that question, what book haven't you read that you uh, feel everybody else has read? Um, and they were kind, you know, they're kind enough to acknowledge um, its source in changing places. Um, and I remember Kingsley Amis kicked off with Anna Karenina, um, or perhaps it was War and Peace. And I could still produce War and Peace because I never read it. Um, but the one I produced, they asked me, um, was I um, um, can't even remember the title, let alone. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, the Grapes of Wrath which I've never read, and I've always a subject of some embarrassment to me, because for some reason, it's the book that every sixth former who comes up to university hoping to read English, I mean, who applies to university and whom one interviews, has read. I mean, it's an immensely popular book in schools, I don't know why. Uh, in American literature terms, Steinbeck is now regarded as a sort of second division writer, I would say. Um, but, um, no, everybody's read that. I have never read that. I've read other works by Steinbeck, and now I'm sort of almost reluctant to break my virginity with that book. I <laughs> don't think I will re ever read it. I want to keep that always as my winning card. Is there a theme um, or a form that you haven't yet attacked that you plan to? Uh, I wonder if you ever feel boxed in by the genre you've created or what the challenge you think is ahead of you in the rest of your writing career. Well, I mean, you touch on, on a sensitive point for all writers, I think. That is, uh, there is bound to be limits to what you can competently, imaginatively work with. Um, there is a family resemblance between the works of any one writer. On the other hand, you also don't want to go on just rewriting the same book, and you hope each book is a new raid on the inarticulate, as Eliot said. Um, I mean, I, th I, th I, th I would say that... Um, I'm not quite sure what you mean when you say the genre that I've developed. I mean, I'm associated particularly with something called the campus novel, but not all my novels, and certainly not the last two, um, fall into that category. On the other hand, I mean, I know that all, nearly all my novels are binary in structure. They all involve bringing two completely different cultures or ideas or f philosophies or whatever, into collision and, and seeing what happens. And I um, mean, the novel I'm planning at the moment, working on at the moment, um, it has that structure. Um, but the theme of it, I think, is new. It certainly involved me in a lot of new reading and uh, in a field I've not worked in before, and I find it quite difficult. But um, So I think there's always going to be uh, a mixture of the familiar and the new in, in um, hopefully, in what one does. I don't can't imagine myself suddenly writing a, you know, fantasy in the style of Tolkien or something. It's not just not the way my mind works, not the way my imagination works. But um, it is the fear that haunts all writers, I think, that they will run out of original ideas. David Lodge, for all your very original ideas, thank you very much indeed.
I've, I've been asked to read the statement. This is um, on a, a serious matter, and so I beg you to remain in this rather hot tent for a, a, a few moments longer. This is something which is a theme running throughout the festival, um, and it concerns Index on Censorship, a very valuable magazine which draws attention to writers who are suffering oppression around the world, and this magazine is uh, celebrating its 25th anniversary. And uh, at various events in the festival, the writers are reading a short extract from some foreign writer in such a situation. Um, and I've been asked to read this, so if you would just um, bear with me and listen to this uh, testimony from, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, Pramoida Anantatua, who's an Indonesian writer, who's been living either in prison or under house arrest for the past 30 years, and he wrote this to Index on Censorship. The imposition of bans on literary works in colonial and totalitarian countries is but a reflection of the jealousy of those in power. In 1935, I saw an official of the colonial power confiscate books written by my own father. One morning, a few days later, hundreds of beautifully printed books, the works of someone living in our town, floated on waters swirling under a bridge. He was afraid of having to confront those in power and preferred to surrender his writings to the river. This took place in colonial days in a small town and it was not reported in the press. It was in 1960 that a work of mine was banned for the first time, the overseas Chinese in Indonesia. I heard about the ban while I was abroad and when I returned home I was summoned for an explanation by Supreme War Command. The fact that to this very day all my works are still banned is but a small illustration of the condition of a formerly colonized nation, a social historical product that must look strange for those nations that have enjoyed Western democracy for seven or eight generations. This is quite illogical, and it was precisely for the sake of creative freedom that I had to pay so dearly with the loss of my own freedom for more than 14 years, plus the loss of rights and possessions for which, to this very day, no one is willing to accept responsibility. Freedom is the crown of life. How true that is. Even under conditions of freedom, one's rights and personal possessions, even one's freedom can be seized. Without freedom, it is even worse. 